Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. I'm Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. I'm Lisa Van Boxel, Santa Fe, New Mexico at St. John's College. And I'm Jeff Black in Colorado Springs, Colorado, representing St. John's College, Annapolis. Uh, today we are doing another Aristotle's The Politics uh, by popular demand. Um, you, you spoke, listeners, and we listened a few weeks later, but we're here. Um, and we're going to continue. We're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, we formed the state in our last podcast. No big deal. Just took us one podcast to do that. Uh, and so Jeff's going to do a intro of today's reading, which is going to be pretty brief. So we're going to read a decent amount of it. And then we'll get started. Yeah, so just to recap what we talked about last time and to bring everybody up to speed, uh, we were told that the city is a community that aims at the most authoritative and comprehensive good and that there are different kinds of people in it. And Aristotle's interested in knowing whether there's a science of ruling these different kinds of people and whether it's a different science for different kinds. And so he's going to analyze the city into uh, different kinds of people And he's going to talk about how the city comes to be out of these different kinds of people. And so we talked about um, how the household comes to be and how villages come to be out of households and then how um, eventually cities come to be out of combinations of villages. And it's necessity, it looks like, that pushes this development or this growth And that growth ends, Aristotle tells us, with the city, because the city is the first association uh, that exists for the sake of living well, not just mere living, but living well. And so he concludes on this basis that man is by nature a political animal, an animal that uh, lives and is completed in a city. And Aristotle tells us that this is evident. Um, But as we noted in our podcast last time, There are already lots of problems on the table, chief of which is that it looks like the city might necessarily embody some injustices. So, Brian, it's time to mobilize the radio voice. Would you mind reading a little bit, starting at 1253A? You got it. It follows that the state belongs to the class of objects which exist by nature, and that man is by nature a political animal. Anyone who by his nature, and not simply by ill luck, has no state, is either too bad or too good either superhuman or subhuman. He is like the war-mad man condemned in Homer's words as having no family, no law, no home. For he who is such by nature is mad on war. He is a non-cooperator, like an isolated piece in a game of drafts. Yeah, if we could stop there. Uh, I'd like to talk about this because it's a a striking thing. Aristotle's trying to give us reasons why uh, man is by nature a political animal. And the first thing he chooses to talk about, uh, it's an odd thing to my mind, is this claim that uh, somebody who is not political, right, somebody who by nature, not by accident, but by nature, uh, doesn't have a city, doesn't need a city, um, loves war. So why, why would that be? So part of it's got to be the nature of the cooperation that he talked about in that in the you know prior reading, you know that there's pairs um, and that the city functions through a cooperation of households and villages uh, to create a state, and so there's that cooperative the cooperative impulse, but then mm-hmm. this war madman uh, who might be superhuman or subhuman, and I love I love that you know you can't just be average. 
you know, yeah, yeah. and be like warm at and on your own. Um, but the warm ad man doesn't want to cooperate. It's not in his nature to do so, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's said to be self-sufficient. So maybe because he doesn't need things, he uh, in some way uh, needs something to do that he flows outward rather than needing to gather inward. And that means expressing itself as war. Um, there's a really interesting thing here, which is the quotation from Homer. Uh, comes from Book 9 of the Iliad. And it's Nestor speaking. It's not entirely clear to me who he's speaking about, but he could be speaking about Achilles. And if he is, then maybe this is an example of the kind of person who um, perhaps is self-sufficient and seems to be a war lover. It's a striking observation because um, it's not clear that everybody who loves war has to be this type. But particularly with what Brian referred to as... as, um, the superior human being, why that person would be characterized by a war lover as, as a war lover. And I guess I, this is jumping ahead a bit, but I, I'm wondering in this context, whether that means something like dialectics, um, which is a sort of war, war in speech where you're testing ideas. And obviously he hasn't, he hasn't dropped that on us yet, but that might begin to make sense of it. Um, before we get there, I guess I too am inclined to think that um, the argument he's built so far, as Brian said, is that there's a natural inclination to form units for the sake of not only of living, but ultimately living well. So the trajectory toward communal life. Um, And if you don't have that, um, then it looks like he's suggesting if you're not with us, you're against us. Um, Almost Mm -hmm. a Hobbesian type note. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. let let me ask you to clarify there, at least the, the war madman is against society or just against being a part of it? Well, I thought, well, that's why I, I wanted to open this other possibility, which he hasn't fleshed out yet. But if a philosopher might be characterized as a warrior of sorts, right, insofar as he's always wrestling with his own ideas, particularly through this thing I call dialectics, but it's really just sort of talking to yourself, assuming different perspectives, testing them, pushing them as a way of learning, That's that might be a type of war, in which case I don't think you're necessarily against society. I think that's going to be a pretty complex question. We'll have to see more. But um, the more obvious immediate reading, uh, at least for me, opens the possibility that he has something like a Hobbesian notion in mind. Of course, Hobbes obviously much later, but that is if you're not with us in some way, you are you are against us. Um, again, I'm not, I don't think we have enough text to see that yet, but that's one mm-hmm. possible reading of this. That might be the beast person, right? Mm-hmm. So again, just to recap, if the trajectory as he sketched it is um, at the lowest level, we have a, a human being who's like a, a beast. And as a beast, uh, we are not political, not even like bees, right? Because we don't, we don't, simply naturally cooperate. There is tension between the individual good and the common good or the public good. Um, The position that's sort of one step above that is this human being who um, enters into a household, uh, man, wife, slave, and he says that's for the sake of living. But then, as we noted last time, there's this trajectory from just living, surviving, to living well, and then ultimately to living sort of nobly or beautifully, and maybe even philosophically, that those things are dependent on 
the city and only fulfilled in the city, although the status of the philosopher is going to be a little more complex than that. If that's the case, then, then yes, it does at least look plausible to me that on the lower end of that ladder I just sketched, you have a human being who, uh, I thought as you were saying, Brian, is, is not very disposed toward any kind of cooperation. And the suggestion to that might be that's a da- that is a dangerous person um, who tacitly or explicitly is at war with people trying to cooperate. Mm-hmm. And let me just suggest two things that I think endorse the direction that Lisa is pointing us in. Um, the first is that um, when Nestor is speaking in this passage that um, Aristotle cites, it's in Book 9, um, he might be talking about Achilles. He might also be talking about Diomedes, who has just said that he wants to fight uh, in Troy by himself with only one friend to help him. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the Greeks can go home, as Agamemnon has uh, suggested. Um, and Nestor opposes that suggestion, and he says it's not a good idea. And then he goes on to suggest that uh, they should send an embassy to try to persuade Achilles to rejoin them. So Nestor is about to suggest a kind of dialectic, right? He's going to send some people to debate or to try to persuade Achilles why he ought to re- rejoin the Greeks. And the second thing, much more straightforward, uh, that reference to the game of drafts or the game of backgammon is often in the Platonic dialogues used as an image for dialectic. Yes. Right. So there are a couple indications here that Achilles is absent and that uh, what's being thought of here is a kind of overflow into inquiry once you don't have any needs tying you down. Yes. So just to fill out that suggestion by Nestor of sending the the envoy to Achilles, Another way in which it fits with what Aristotle's saying in this context is he wants to send um, Achilles' intimates, right? His friends of Achilles, including somebody who basically served as his father, acted as his father. So again, you sort of get this ladder of from household through comrades in battle, etc., up to the philosopher um, in the case of Odysseus, potentially. Mm -hmm. Should we read on a little more? Yeah, I'm just really impressed by all these deep cuts into Homer. So if everybody else isn't impressed, you should be. Read your Iliad. Listen to our past podcasts on the Iliad. All right, picking up. Uh, But obviously man is a political animal in a sense in which a bee is not or any other gregarious animal. Nature, as we say, does nothing without some purpose, and she has endowed man alone among the animals with the power of speech. Speech is something different from voice, which is possessed by other animals also and used by them to express pain or pleasure. For their nature does indeed enable them not only to feel pleasure and pain, but to communicate these feelings to each other. Speech, on the other hand, serves to indicate what is useful and what is harmful, and so also what is just and what is unjust. For the real difference between man and other animals is that humans alone have perception of good and evil, just and unjust, etc., it is the sharing of a common view in these matters that makes a household and a state. Yeah, so um, maybe the first thing that jumps out at me there is that Aristotle's uh, trying to give us an additional reason why uh, we should consider man to be a political animal. And he's introduced the question of degree. There might be more or less political animals, and man is an extremely, or the human being is an extremely political animal. But when he concludes his line of reasoning, right where we stopped, he says it's community and speech in good and bad and just and unjust that make a household and a city. 
And that's a little surprising. You'd expect him to say just a city there, right? Because that's the, um, the basis on which man is a political animal. Um, anybody have any ideas why the household is in there as well? Can we build up to that, Jeff, actually? Because this yeah. is such a rich paragraph. Yeah, first, I just want to begin with the very intellectual observation of, I love that formulation of the gregarious bee. <laughs> 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 like, that's pretty great. Um, but I just want, I wanted to start there because one might think, um, and Aristotle doesn't think this, but that a, an, a, an entity like a bee that belongs to a hive is the perfect model of a, of a political animal because every bee has its place. There's no envy. Um, they all seem to be fully fulfilled doing what they do, and it works very much as a unit. And Aristotle, and Aristotle points out, well, actually, um, that is not an indication of being a more political animal than man. Um, it's an indication of being less than one. And, yeah. and then he goes, he goes on to say, because man alone has speech, so um, other entities, including other beasts, other animals, have voice. And he says, well, that can indicate pleasure and pain, but that's not sufficient to be um, a political animal um, or as much of a political animal as a human being. And I take it it's because if I'm signifying to others that I feel pleasure or pain, there's no dispute that goes on there. Like mm. I'm, I'm either feeling it or I'm not, and I'm indicating it, but there's nothing to be sort of talked about or debated. But when he goes on to say, but human beings have speech, and speech serves to reveal the advantageous and the harmful. And there it looks like we can have disagreements. So I could say it's advantageous for us to have um, equality under the law, for instance, and somebody else could say, well, I don't think so. And we might be making claims about what's advantageous for us as a, as a group, as a, um, say in this case, as a, as a political society. Um, and it's actually the disagreement and the working out of who has the better account, it looks like, that constitutes a higher state of political being. So paradoxically, not the fact that we all just fit like bees into a hive and become a sort of whole, but actually that we're in this um, potentially precarious position of having an ongoing tension between what we are as individuals and what we are as members of a group. That that, that which I regard as an insolvable problem, actually ends up being also the source of what makes us most political. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, like th- I like how he segues from you know, in that very quick piece, you know, obviously man is a political animal, mentions the bee, you know, is not. And then this very interesting line, nature, as we say, does nothing without some purpose. Mm. And I think to a degree, he's saying that, or I'll, I'll ask this, is is he saying that, you know, the purpose of humanity is to form those households and to form those villages and to form those states you know, if it's in our nature, it must be our purpose. If it's how we live our best life, it mm. must ha- it must be natural. It must be our purpose. And I mean, I guess I'll just ask. It, it seems he's saying that. I want to get confirmation from you guys that <laughs> that's that's well, guess, where he's going. I guess I still want to hang on to the ladder. And of course, we haven't answered Jeff's question yet. But um, what we touched on a few moments ago. And what he'll reiterate again, that the person who is self-sufficient is either a beast or a god. And often when Aristotle speaks of a god, he doesn't, he doesn't mean that literally. He means something like a philosopher. So I 
I think you're right, Brian, except I wouldn't want to say this, that the end of the human being is to be part of a city um, without adding on to it that maybe um, insofar as he is taking nature as a standard, human beings have speech, speech allows us to deliberate and to, and to um, have this dialectical uh, mode of inquiry, um, and we can perceive good, bad, just, and unjust, it could also be that by... Uh, um, identifying speech as our peculiar attribute or the one that we have most of all compared to other animals, he is leaning towards saying we're philosophic. And that, um, I guess we've touched on this a couple times, but Jeff has also alluded to it in this pod. Um, we might find that there's an ongoing, and maybe even fecund, but ongoing tension between the city and the philosopher as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. And the um the claim about nature doing nothing in vain, I think the, um, the, the next premise is something like uh, speech would be in vain were it not for politics, right? In other words, if it were just a question of expressing pleasure and pain, there's no need for speech. Um, voice, presumably uh, good sounds or bad sounds, are coextensive with the sentiments of pleasure and pain. The very feelings are accompanied by you know, sounds of pleasure or sounds of pain. Um, and speech seems to become necessary when a given pleasure might also be bad, harmful, disadvantageous, unjust, and a given pain might be good, right? In other words, speech seems to come in and become necessary when you have to explain what a pain or a pleasure means, something beyond it itself. And that looks like it extends human beings temporally, right? You know, this might have a reason in the past, it might be beneficial in the future, and it also gives us this new level. We have to say what things what pleasures and pain mean. Yeah. And, and it, Aristotle seems to think that we only need to do that in a political setting. Sorry, Elise. No, it's okay. Um, it looks like the options that, that he, he doesn't say it's, um, they're exhaustive, but the options that he offers us here in terms of um, how we're going to think about pleasure and pain, which again, I don't think there's any debate about t- telling someone they don't feel pain or pleasure when they're feeling it. But um just to flesh out what you said, Jeff, advantageous or disadvantageous. And then he says, good and bad, just and unjust, right? Um, So we we move from good and bad, which he hasn't defined yet, but that might be equivalent to advantageous for me, advantageous to the common good. And then just and unjust, we don't really have a sense of what that is just yet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then back to... Oh, sorry, Jeff. Um, did you... Well, I was just, just going to say that uh, it does seem to me that just and unjust involves another level of meaning beyond advantageous and disadvantageous. But go ahead. Yeah. No, I was actually going to take you back to your question. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so everything we've said so far, I think, does pertain to the city. But you asked, well, why include the household? Right. Yeah. Right. In other words, it looks like... Um, If Aristotle's argument is that necessity pushes, we've seen that argument, but having speech pulls, if I can put it that way, because otherwise speech would be in vain, it looks like speech only pulls us as high as the household, right? Which is not uh, for the sake of living well, but for the sake of living uh, with, with a certain number of necessities satisfied. And so he might, to my mind, be indicating that there's something that, uh, is needed in addition to speech, that speech doesn't quite get us all the way there. I just want to be clear of understanding, but are you suggesting that um, he doesn't think that one might debate things like good and bad in a household? No, I'm thinking that uh, 
households might be satisfactory or sufficient from the perspective of debating good and bad. I see. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or it would be a worry, I think, based on the, the presentation. It's not clear why cities, in addition, would be necessary. Right. Let me put it that way. On Although, the grounds of speech. Okay. Are, are you holding out, though? I'm, I'm, I'm detecting a hint. Let me see if I'm right. You're suggesting, well, good and bad might... Uh, you might be able to have those conversations about good and bad in a household and certainly advantageous or disadvantageous, but maybe you wouldn't have discussions about just and unjust in a, in a household. Yeah, that's that's a yeah. good question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do we want to read a little bit more? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's go. Furthermore, the state has a natural priority over the household and over any individual among us, for the whole must be prior to the part. Separate hand or foot from the whole body, and they will no longer be hand or foot except in name, as one might speak of a hand or foot sculptured in stone. That will be the condition of the spoiled hand, which no longer has the capacity and the function which defined it. So though we may say they have the same names, we cannot say they are in that condition the same things. It is clear, then, that the state is both natural and prior to the individual. For if an individual is not fully self-sufficient after separation, he will stand in the same relationship to the whole as the parts in the other case in the other case do. Whatever is incapable of participating in the association which we call the state, a dumb animal for example, and equally whatever is perfectly self-sufficient and has no need, e.g. a god, is not part of the state at all. Okay. Yeah, let's pause there. Yeah. So I guess at this uh, point, I'm only inclined, or at least I'm inclined to begin just by registering uh, shock or astonishment at what Aristotle is saying here. So if, if I'm understanding it, um, uh, a village insofar as it's part of a city is a real village. A family insofar as it's part of a city is a real family. And a person insofar as the person is part of a city is a real person. But insofar as any of those things are not parts of a city, they're not really those things. Yeah. They're defective. And that, that's, that's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, it's, a, it's an odd suggestion. Let's add to that confusion. It's just a fleshing out. Um, I thought we had before that the city sort of arose out of the household, but now we have some, that the city is prior by nature to the household. So um, he's contrasting a, what might be a temporal priority of the household over the city to what he claims is a prior by nature or maybe a logical priority of the city to the household, so not temporal. And we touched on this last time, but I, I take it it's a, a looking again at his argument that we that we, dis, we discussed according to which uh, the household points toward the city so it's somehow not complete an, until, less than until it's part of the city, which goes back to what you were saying, Jeff, that somehow mm-hmm. it's not really a household until that's happened. And maybe this part and whole approach helps to explain why the um, component parts are retained in the whole, right? In other words, it's not as if people say... Uh, you know, oh, this family is insufficient, this household is insufficient, let's get rid of it and make a village. The household is retained in the village, and presumably it becomes more of a household when there's a village, right? And similarly, the village is retained in uh, the city as a part of it, right? So they don't disappear. And yet he's being tricky again. We get this restatement. I'll just read my translation. It's the last thing Brian read. One who is incapable of participating or who is in need of nothing through being self-sufficient is no part of a city 
and so is either a beast or a god. So I'm interested in that or. It doesn't look or. like it's necessarily a, um, that is to say, in other words, a further elaboration of, of what it means to be incapable of participating, but rather um, you get people who are incapable of participating and they might be a beast, or you get an alternative um, where you're self-sufficient and then you might be this godlike human being, which I was suggesting is the philosopher. Um, mm-hmm. So 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 that beast person, it if they if they don't participate in a city, it's actually not entirely because they're self-sufficient. It's because they're bestial, <laughs> right? Right. And if the philosopher doesn't or the god doesn't participate in the city, if I'm following you, uh, it's not because they're incapable of sharing. Right. Right. But because they're self-sufficient. Right. But that claim that you, there is this god, possibly this godlike being um, who is no part of the city and is self-sufficient, although is capable of participating, that undermines the sense that, uh, you know, we are simply parts of a larger whole that came prior to it. So again, maybe emphasizing this, this sort of ladder-like move um, from uh, something that, that one could say must be in a city or properly belongs to a city to something that seems to transcend the city, although that doesn't necessarily mean like living off the grid or something, but maybe self-sufficient and transcending it in some other way. Right. And it's a pretty good selling point, right? Because you're a god. (laughs) As long as you can be like, I don't need the city, then you are either a beast or a god. And you're like, I might take my chances, you know, (laughs) 50-50. Yeah, apparently gods have speech, yes. whereas beasts don't. Yes. And so it looks like uh, gods are capable of, of sharing, uh, much as it might be to our misfortune. Yes. <laughs> and I'm still stuck I'm still stuck on the war mad thing, though. Like, I, I, I know you guys have plenty more Iliad references uh, in, your, in your back pocket. Um, mm-hmm. There's one coming up. <laughs> how, how do we tie this sentence here in with... You know, this idea of a beast or a god with that, you know, war mad man. Well, like, I thought Jeff, Jeff, I think, uh, actually provided the answer, but let's flesh it out. This god, um, potentially a philosophic human being, has speech, which is to say, I, I presume this, this being can, um, in his own his or her own mind engage in dialectics, that is question and answer, and have speeches and sort of do battle with him or herself. Um, so, so one can be alone and, and, and be at war or be warlike um, in this particular way. Yeah. Or self-sufficient. Yeah, in, the, in, in the case of the, of the, the beast, it seems like... Um, it might really be accident that determines whether the beast is um, undergoing pain or pleasure at any given time, and uh, pursuit of pain or pleasure, right? Pursuit of pleasure and avoidance of pain uh, might amount to war for that beast, right? It can't really uh, share in common, uh, partly because it doesn't know uh, the things that it's missing, right? It's not aware of the other levels like the advantageous, disadvantageous, and just and unjust. Um, so that might explain why uh, the mean sort is also inclined to war, yeah. right? They just want to keep the keep the pleasure flowing. If you want, if we wanted to put it sort of provocatively, maybe with a shout out to a military type, one might put it this way: that the philosopher, um, it it might be the capacity to be warlike with oneself, 
that is thinking, a thinking being that constitutes self-sufficiency, right? That if you cannot do that, you are not self-sufficient because you rely on other people to help you determine or to impose upon you justice, things like justice or what the good is. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I thought you would. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking to yourself. This doesn't, I, you know, I'm just asking general questions. None of this is personalized at all. You know, it's all about our listeners. That's what I'm thinking of. Uh, anyway, you guys want to do the next paragraph? Yeah, yeah let's, let's go, go for it. Chapter three. Um, well, no, we're not at chapter three yet. We still got Oh, wait, one more paragraph. Don't rush us, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good time, Jeff. <laughs> you think we're going to get through six paragraphs in one podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Among all men, then, there is a natural impulse towards this kind of association. And the first man to construct a state deserves credit for conferring very great benefits. For as man is the best of all animals when he has reached his full development, so he is worst of all when divorced from law and justice. Injustice armed is hardest to deal with. And though man is born with weapons which he can use in the service of practical wisdom and virtue, it is all too easy for him to use them for the opposite purposes." Hence, man without virtue is the most savage, the most unrighteous, and the worst in regard to sexual license and gluttony. The virtue of justice is a feature of a state, for justice is the arrangement of the political association, and a sense of justice decides what is just. I feel like that might be a wonky translation, so if you guys have any like other verbiage... Um... I, I, I can read this one, uh, which I think is the mm-hmm. same as Jeff. I don't actually think it's that much different, but... It... You could always reread Aristotle, and especially when I think it confirms what we just said. (laughs) So he says, uh, Accordingly, there is in everyone by nature an impulse toward this sort of partnership. And yet the one who first constituted a city is responsible for the greatest of goods. For just as man is the best of animals when completed, when separated from law and adjudication, he is the worst of all. For injustice is harshest when it is furnished with arms, and man is born naturally possessing arms for the use of prudence and virtue, which are nevertheless very susceptible to being used for their opposites. This is why, without virtue, he is the most unholy and the most savage of the animals, and the worst with regard to sex and food. The virtue of justice is a thing belonging to the city, For adjudication is an arrangement of the political partnership, and the adjudication, and adjudication is judgment as to what is just. So I thought at least part of this is we were suggesting the beast-like human being who cannot engage in in sort of self-checking or having a conversation with himself to work out what is good and bad um, needs to be ruled. Because if he's not ruled, uh, he is just the, the most savage of all creatures. Right. Mm-hmm. So now I think that does confirm what we were saying before. Um, right. And it extends the human. If you thought Aristotle was arguing that um, someone who's no part of a city uh, being a beast means that they're somehow subhuman, he makes it clear, no, this is part of the range of humanity. Yeah. And that, of course, opens up the other end of the scale as well. Right. This phrase that we've been using a god or uh, more than human. It looks like the human extends to that, too. Yes. Right? He's less um, explicit about that possibility, but it's not clear why we would rule it out at this point. We also have confirmation for what I was suggesting was your, your, your tease or your hint, Jeff, earlier. That is, um, 
he he isolates justice as the thing belonging to the city. I take it uh, either alone or in particular. So if good and bad might still be debated in a household, it looks like justice is not or is is not to the same extent. That's a that's a civic a city thing. Yeah. Right. In particular, arrangement of the political community is that issue in a city, and it's not at issue in the household. Right. Yeah. And then the final thing that. Brian was wondering about it's also confirmed, right? He says there is by nature a sort of trajectory toward this sort of partnership. Um, right. And in fact, I think we've identified two, right? There's the push of necessity from beneath, right? The insufficiency of each form of association. And then there's apparently also this pull from above that we have a capacity that will only be fulfilled by greater and greater forms of association. Yeah. I guess, too, the final thing we have is on the lower end, um, what Brian was wondering about why it would be that somebody who is not part of a city uh, by choice, if we could, um, without getting into what what constitutes choice, but just in in a very loose sense, is um, at war and a lover of war. Um, We now see that that, uh, the suggestion here is that human being on the low end is... is, uh, savage with regard i mean more savage than any beast with regard to sex and food so that's a very dangerous uh creature more so than other beasts which maybe um actually are more inclined to be uh moderate if i could use that word with respect to a beast Uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. regulated by their natural needs right this one seems less regulated yeah and not um participating in any kind of uh adjudication that would limit those desires, right? From outside, at least. Yeah. So that's all right. So is it, go ahead, Brian. uh, The idea of the the regulation, right? Like animals are, are regulated kind of by nature in like limited resources. Right. And so is there something about like the society that can provide seemingly unlimited resources that forces us to create this kind of idea of justice in order to regulate behaviors. Is that is that implicit in this at all, or did I just extrapolate way too far? I, I yeah, thought, I'd be inc- oh, go ahead. I guess I was thinking... Um... It's not just necessity that limits. If we think, if we think of, uh, you can see footage, for instance, of polar bears sometimes playing with huskies that are tied up, or lions sometimes lying close to herds of gazelles. It looks to me there like, um, or maybe maybe this is what you meant by necessity. They will hunt when they're hungry, but when they're not uh, impelled by hunger to hunt, they they might not. Then the dog might become a plaything. But I thought the suggestion was with a human being, um, their desire for sex and food might be what we would call perverse. That is, you, you know, you, uh, raping, killing, these sorts of things, maybe sometimes just for the heck of it, n- not ruled by your appetites, as Jeff was suggesting. I thought that that's also on the table for a human being in a way it, it isn't for other creatures. Yeah, it's interesting. Just trying to like frame that up in my head about, you know, the difference that he pointed out as far as the, the greater expanse of speech and then that how ex- exactly how that ties into the idea of virtue then combating our you know sexual license and gluttony i don't know mm-hmm. i don't know we got more paragraphs to go guys so let's not <laughs> well, I, i'm bogging us down behind here <laughs> i'm bogging us down well, well 
maybe let me just say one thing that I think uh, follows up on what Lee said, and, and Rousseau is, is helpful here, right? So he um, really puts a lot of weight on Aristotle's uh, formulation, if these things are natural, these needs are natural, then man is by nature a political animal. And Rousseau will say things like, or imply things like, um, human beings don't feel sexual desire unless they encounter a suitable mate, right? But as soon as you have speech, if that extends you beyond the present and beyond pleasure and pain, you start to imagine uh, potential sexual encounters beyond the presence, the availability of any particular partner. And that looks like it uh, might start you on the road towards the sort of uh, perversity that Lisa is thinking of, the expansion of desires beyond any reasonable. And also, I guess, back to the, the thing that makes us most political is the double-edged sword. That is, um, to recap, what makes us most political is the fact that we don't simply um, dissolve into a common good. There's there's tension between us as individuals and communities. But I take it this, this beast, it's that very capacity uh, that leads to conversation and to philosophy and hence to the godlike human being, but that very capacity also means at the low end, um, if I don't identify with other human beings really at all, in other words, I'm, I, I feel myself as primarily as an individual, or maybe at all is too strong, but strongly as an individual, and don't feel much community with other human beings, um, then I'm, I'm very, very dangerous, right? I, yeah. Um, there is no way we're going to get through... <laughs> <laughs> so not again <laughs> as a teaser for our listeners i mean well this could be super easy um as we're you know just going to tackle slavery next so that should be super fast or probably not uh so i would say like let's pause here and then tune in tune in next week for the household and its slaves and the slave as a tool um, because there's no yeah. way we're going to get through that uh, relatively quickly. So um, no, we're not. Yeah, yeah. But we could give a bit of a we could give a bit of a plug and say, uh, we, um, sl- Aristotle's position on slavery and also on women is often regarded as um, is very out of tune with our time. Um, and I think when we read it slowly together, we're going to see that uh, that may not be the case. He's actually, he's excellent, I, I think, on both of these issues, very thoughtful and doesn't conclude what many people probably expect he concludes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the list of problems and very interesting conundrums that Aristotle is going to introduce bearing on natural slavery is, is long. So it's very well worth going through with care. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I'll put in a, a few plugs here. I first want to thank uh, two of our donors. We have donors Donors. Uh, yeah. I uh, want to thank Nancy and Jess uh, for donating through our PayPal, uh, which you can find on our website, but it's buried all the way at the bottom because we're like, who's going to want to give us money for this? Uh, so thank you for those folks that have yeah, donated. Yeah, hooray. Thank you, hooray. guys. Thanks so much. Brian, you've been holding out on us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, I, I thought just, you said donuts, but it's donors. Donuts. That's much yeah. better. Well, I've already, I already went to the casino and spent it all. So thank you guys for, for that. Um, the other plugs, well, we're going to, we'll be back quickly. I know we had a little hiatus listeners, but we'll be back quickly. We're recording this on Friday, October 5th. We're going to actually record 
uh, another Aristotle pickup where we left off in two weeks. In the interim, we're actually recording um, a little pod addendum. Uh, we're going to be doing The Hills Like White Elephants with uh, author Matt Young, who was uh, got nice. interviewed a few weeks ago, and also, also uh, author Ann Knigensdorf, who's a St. John's grad and a Navy veteran. Um, so we're actually recording that tomorrow, so back-to-back pod days. Um, and then also, if you're in Dallas, uh, October 17th, Wednesday, October 17th, uh, I'm directing and co-starring in a production of Ajax at the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture. So um, that's on our web, or on our Facebook. We've published that, at least I think we did, uh, or you can look up Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture if you're a local Dallas listener. And it's I think we got a hit on our hands, uh, mostly because I'm... I have like, well, I have a lot of lines now, but I'm going to cut it to like five lines. Um, <laughs> but Nicole and Steve, who are professional actors who are starring in this play, are excellent. We just rehearsed last night and they killed it. Um, I wish I could see this. It sounds yeah. great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun uh, rehearsing. I think it'll, I think we're going to blow the doors off. But um, anyway, uh, any parting thoughts on Aristotle or anything else we want to talk about on Aristotle before we call it a day, guys? Not for me. Okay. I'm looking forward to this discussion yeah. of natural slavery. It's controversial, yeah. and uh, I think there are lots of things to talk about. Yeah. I guess I, I, since you invited, I guess I, I've been thinking about um, St. John's offers these summer classics program. That was a, a, a very craftily <laughs> inserted plug. Um, it's all commercials do, here <laughs> at the end. <laughs> it's all commercials. Um, we, we do we, week-long um, sort of seminars for anybody that's interested, and you can find that information on our website. But in any case... I was thinking about what I might offer, and and it might be this, and for this reason, I think it's arguable, and I think I, I think this is certainly my opinion. I don't think there's anybody or any book that gives such a comprehensive and thoughtful treatment of politics as this work, and it's still relevant today. And I, we're going to work our way up toward that. But he's just so careful at always seeing um, from the perspective of the person he is examining what they're always saying something that has some merit to it. And he'll try and enter into that and then see, see it from the other perspective. Um, so, uh, if you're going to read one book on politics, I make a plug for this one. Yeah. Ditto. I'm, I'm, I'm going to think about that. I'm going to think about that mainly because I feel like I have a good joke there, but I don't want to be overly politically topical. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been racking my brains the whole time I've been saying that. It's like, what's a non-political hotspot, but notably really bad, like political memoir? That I can there's, nowhere there's nowhere to go today, Brian. Just nowhere to go. No, there's not. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Lise. Uh, another Aristotle in the can here. Thank you, listeners, yeah, thank for you. tuning in. And thanks to donors. Thank thanks you, to the donors. Yeah, thanks, thanks to our donuts. donors and our donuts. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.